Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So welcome everybody to a Macklin's Take bonus episode. We brought you a good run of these during lockdown. Thanks to our top producer, Darren Reese. we were able to drop a couple of episodes a week to try and help keep everybody entertained and Darren has decided that he wants to up his work rate yet again and uh, and start bringing us a second episode per week for well I'm not sure exactly how long but the next few weeks maybe so what we do in this format is we revisit old conversations that we've had in earlier podcasts and stitch them together based on a certain theme to bring you extra episodes uh, and today it's journalists and we look back on three conversations we've had in the past. The first one being with Thomas Hauser. Now, we recorded this one with Thomas at the TikTok Diner just across the road from Madison Square Garden. It was the AJ versus Ruiz fight week uh, last June. And Thomas, of course, needs no introduction. One of the finest boxing writers of his generation. He always has plenty of interesting things to say. And this was no exception. Hot on the heels of Thomas Hauser, we have another one of his colleagues stateside, Steve Farad, who is a Hall of Famer himself and very well known in print and in broadcast circles over the last few decades. Now best known for his work on Showtime's boxing coverage. And we recorded the one with Steve on fight day for AJ versus Ruiz in Andy Ruiz's dressing room uh, a few hours before the the eye of the storm, little did we know at the time that that evening, later that evening, where we were sat would be the scene of jubilant celebrations as the world heavyweight titles, the WBA, the IBF and the WBO changed hands in incredibly dramatic circumstances. And then after Steve, last but certainly not least, we come back to the UK to chat to a, a really good friend of ours, John Denon. John is a published author. He wrote a very good biography of Anthony Joshua. So if you feel that you're in need of a Christmas present for a a friend or a relative who enjoys their boxing, then look no further than that. He's also a top man and writer on the beat for Boxing News, of course. And we spoke to John back in 
January down at the Crown Plaza Hotel, just the uh, south side of Waterloo Bridge. Um, so those are your those are your sources for this particular episode. As I say, we'll be bringing you more of these over the coming weeks. Hope you enjoy it. The shark baby has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites with his teeth. Find us in the TikTok diner just across the street from Madison Square Garden in Mustang Harry's yesterday. Change of location today. And this was a recommendation of our esteemed guest this afternoon, Mr. Thomas Hauser. I think it's fair to say a legendary fight scribe and author. Thomas, great to see you and thanks for, thanks for giving us your time today. I guess first things first, when did you first go to Madison Square Garden? This, this is your city, this is your town, it's kind of when, your venue. When I was a kid, I used to come to Madison Square Garden for basketball and hockey games. And back then, the garden was not located where it is today. It was on 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th Streets. And that actually was the third incarnation of Madison Square Garden. This is the fourth. The original Madison Square Garden was south of here in Madison Square, which is where the name Madison Square Garden came from. And so what was the first fight that you came to the garden to watch? The first fight I ever went to was at the Third Garden on 8th Avenue. Floyd Patterson fought George Shavalo. My uncle took me, and it was exciting. I was more of a baseball fan in those days. Baseball and football and basketball were my primary sports, but I could understand the excitement of it. And those were when you had the Friday night fights on television. I used to watch boxing there, and I was a casual fan. It became much more serious later on. Floyd Patterson was always a character who really kind of fascinated me when I got into boxing history. From, from Bedford-Stuyvesant, where a lot of good fighters have been from, from down the years, tough place, very kind of complex, insecure guy. We know the stories about him leaving venues in disguise after defeats to Sonny Liston and, and, and Ingemar Johansson. And he's a good example, really, of the kinds of different sorts of personalities that boxing, that boxing throws up. Is, is that one of the things that attracted you to the sport in the first place? Well, boxing has always had characters. I've said many times that some of the best people I've ever met in my life are in boxing. Many of the worst people I've ever met in my life are in boxing. But it is never boring. And that's particularly true of the fighters. Uh, fighters can be some of the smartest, you know, most wonderful, you know, interesting people in the world. You also have to be a little nuts to be a fighter. Uh, I remember Matthew telling me, I asked Matthew... Uh, why he became a fighter and uh, I think what you said to me Matthew was uh, well I was stupid and by the time I got smart I was hooked that's so pretty much it it's, uh, it's, uh, but it, it, it's an amazing sport uh, you, know, you, you could take anybody who ever lived at any point in time and put him or her down at ringside for a fight 
and they would know exactly what was happening. They would understand it. That's not true of most sports, but it is true of boxing. That's it. I think uh, no matter what happens, everyone, every man, woman alive can uh, understand a fight is a fight. You can see who's winning and you can see who's losing, you know, more or less without getting technical or into the skills of boxing. But generally, one man fighting another one, you get the feeling. You can see who's kind of having the upper hand in there. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, sometimes the judges can't tell, you know, as you know from your experience with Felix Sturm. Absolutely. You, know, you, 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 can, you can sometimes, and it, it's a shame, it, it's one of the things that's so wrong about boxing. You could take three people at random out of the crowd and put them in the judges' seats, and they'd come up with a better decision than the judges. Sometimes it's incompetence, sometimes it's corruption. And it's one of the things that's ruining boxing. In other sports, there's a presumption that the officials are fair. They might make mistakes, but you assume they're trying their hardest. And that's not true of boxing. To what extent do you think that corruption... What kind of scale is it on? Because we all see bad decisions. I've done a lot of work for, for IEBA, and who knows whether they'll keep going or not over the last four or five years. And I've seen some decisions at ringside which were, they could not be explained by incompetence. They just couldn't be. But I never saw anything or got any kind of whisper of anything going on. If there are clandestine dealings, then they're obviously pretty well protected. Well, they're not protected. I mean, you see them in, in, in clear view all the time with these horrible horrible decisions that come down in fights. And, you know, there's now, no accountability. But there's that, that's the problem, is there is no accountability. We're in New York now. The New York State Athletic Commission spends a huge amount of money each year to supposedly regulate boxing. And a lot of that money goes for no-show jobs. It goes for other political patronage. It goes for people who are politically connected to take junkets where they come down from upstate New York to Madison Square Garden and spend a couple of nights here at taxpayer expense. What it's not done is for the proper training of referees and judges you have a few very good referees and judges in New York. Somebody like Harvey Dock, I think, is one of the best referees in the country now. He's in New Jersey, referees quite frequently in New York. But you have some decisions in New York that are horrible, horrible, horrible. Now, does somebody have to go to the judge and give him or her $10,000? No, because you know what? The judge understands that I want this powerful promoter to like me because I might make $10,000 for judging this huge fight. I might make twenty dollars or $30,000 for refereeing this huge fight. So I want top rank. I want PBC. I want these people who have these big fights in New York to take me as the referee, as the judge, so I can get that trip, so I can get that money. And there's no accountability. There are no standards. You'll have a horrible decision. People will you know, talk about it. And then you'll see the same people back in the same seats at ringside the next time around. People know who the bad referees and judges are. People know who the good referees and judges are. But nothing's done about it. It's like, it's like, it's not always as black and white as there's a brown envelope, 
make sure my guy wins, but it's more of a, a general influence, a swaying, that kind of thing, really. It's, uh, you know, basically the, the, the powerful guys that you mentioned there, they're, bringing, they're generating a lot of money. If you're working on that card, you're getting well paid. Uh, and there's a, yeah, it's more of a general influence as opposed to, right, listen, this fight, go down in the fifth. It's not, it's not quite as, uh, as black and white as that, but that doesn't mean to say that there is an influence going on. Would, is, is that a fair summary, would you say, Thomas? Yeah, you fought in Germany against Felix Sturm. What happened to you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you won that fight. Yeah. I mean, you could have taken uh, you know, every fan at ringside and asked them, and the overwhelming majority, if they were watching the fight and being honest, would have said you won the fight. The judges in that fight were influenced. Absolutely. Now, maybe they had a bad night, you know, but they certainly they, they didn't judge that fight properly. And nobody seems to care. And you see the same people in the same seats over and over and over again. You know, you don't have that in other sports, and it strikes at the integrity of the sport. It is not satisfying for a fan to watch a sporting event and then see an unjust decision at the end. When you have a decision and the hometown fighter wins and the crowd boos, you can figure out that's not a very good decision. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! In a way, though, the fact that there is no overarching authority taking charge of boxing, and there never has been, is the problem, isn't it? Because these particular scenarios we're discussing here, really it's only the promoters probably who could solve it by saying to judges, listen, this is not what we want from you. We don't want you just to find in favour of our fighter because you fancy a trip here, there and everywhere. Uh, and object to their appointment in future if they felt that that was what they were doing. But, but boxing's governed by self-interest, isn't it? And that's not really in their self-interest, I suppose. Well, the, the promoter does want the bad decision in certain instances. The promoter does not want his cash cow to lose. The State Athletic Commission is charged with seeing that it doesn't happen, but either the State Athletic Commission doesn't care or might not even understand. I mean... Most state athletic commissions in the United States are run by people who are well-connected politically, who are adept at doing favors for powerful interests, but they don't understand the sport and business of boxing, and they care even less. They want their jobs. They want to be able to sit at ringside for big fights. But regulating the sport properly is down at the bottom of the list of priorities. Thomas, moving on then in terms of, I suppose, regulating sports and commissions and everything as well. Um, 
you did a, you did an absolutely fantastic in-depth investigative piece a few years back on PEDs in boxing. Uh, you know, and even as uh, an enlightening as that was, and, and as scary as that was, it, it's it's just becoming an ever-growing problem. Where where does it end, and how, and how how do well? I, I can tell you how it ends. It ends with fighters being badly brain damaged or killed, and it ends with a whole generation of fighters having more cognitive issues than would normally be the case because they're being hit in the head by fighters who are using performance-enhancing drugs. Now, I've written a series of articles, as you said, most recently for uh, SweetScience.com, before that for SB Nation, for some other websites, tracking the use of performance-enhancing drugs in the sports. And there are a lot of culprits. The state athletic commissions are culpable. USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, is certainly culpable. And one of the articles I wrote, and I would urge your readers to go to Google, you know, type in... Thomas Hauser at USADA and check out some of the things I wrote. One of them was last September I wrote an article pointing out that USADA had tested more than conducted more than 1500 tests for performance enhancing drugs in boxing and reported one positive test result to a governing state athletic commission And that one report came after the result was leaked on the Internet. And what basically occurred was USADA had worked out a sweetheart deal with PBC and Al Heyman to test their fighters to do the veneer of proper drug testing. But then the positive test results were being buried. And USADA subsequently admitted to several state commissions, well, you know, We had positive test results, but we adjudicated them internally. Well, USADA's not supposed to adjudicate test results. USADA's supposed to say, these are negative tests, these are positive tests, and it's up then to the governing state athletic commission to adjudicate. VADA, run by Margaret Goodman, the Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, does a good, honest job. And one of, the, you know, one of the frustrating things about writing is you can write again and again and again and bring injustice to light and nothing much happens. But after I put my article up last September, USADA, which had made millions of dollars from drug testing professional boxers, stopped drug testing professional boxers. It got too hot. So at least for the time being, We've put USADA on the sidelines. If they want to test honestly and report honestly, fine. But I haven't seen that from them. Meanwhile, you're a fighter. You know what happens to you. And you know there are fighters who perform now at a level where, realistically speaking, they couldn't do that. Fighters do not get older, bigger, stronger, and faster all at the same time in the 1930s. With more endurance in, in their late 30s. It doesn't happen if you're doing it honestly. Now, you know, are there exceptions to what you would think of as normal performance? Yeah. You know, if Rocky Marciano were fighting today, you'd say, amazing. 
He just keeps punching and punching. He gets stronger during a fight. He can take anything. His endurance is incredible. Well, we know Rocky Marciano didn't use PEDs because they didn't have them. Muhammad Ali. Oh, God, this guy's reflexes, his speed, not possible without PEDs. But again, Ali was before PEDs. But if you look at trends in sports and what's happening to fighters today, it's not all good, honest conditioning. They're not all exceptions to the rule. It's a general pattern, a trend, as you say. Like you say, you'll always have the individual exceptions they're all the special talents or the exceptional uh, durable guys but when it's uh, like you say a general pattern a trend that that's when it, that's when the alarm bells are uh, ringing loudly and the only serious testing is coming from vada and not enough fighters are being subjected to vada testing and vada doesn't have the funds to do it often enough so do they catch people occasionally yeah but the state athletic commissions uh, and I can't speak for every commission, but I can speak for a lot of them, particularly in New York, has shown no inclination to deal with this problem. In fact, the New York Commission, which basically takes its orders from political higher-ups, has been told to back off on PED issues. Which, which is kind of scary, Thomas, and really when you think about the light that your article shone on it, which you took upon yourself, you did the investigations and all the inquiries, but really I think what boxing needs, it needs a separate independent body that basically carries out the work you did on that article, but you know, 365 days of the year, you know, recruits information, does testing and, or or certainly at least monitors, scrutinizes that testing. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have the answers, but, I mean, it's something along those lines. There yeah, needs to be something independent. Here in the United States, that won't happen because the Association of Boxing Commissions is toothless. The state athletic commissions individually don't have the knowledge, the will, or the finances to do it right. At the end of the day, it's going to have to be the fighters who take control here. It's going to have to be the fighters who say, wait a minute, we're getting hit in the head harder, not just in fights, also in sparring in the gym, and we have to stop this. Um, one, one last quick one before you, 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 you speak, Andy, uh, you're trying to get in there, but um, in, in, in the UK, Thomas, the British Boxing Board of Control, every boxer that's registered, licensed with the Board of Control are subject to random 365-day blood and urine testing and I don't know of any other commission in the world where that's the case. And obviously, it's nationwide spread, and they can knock at your door at any time. Surely, the USA, I know there's different states and everything, but you would imagine that every commission within the US should all kind of sign up to that, that any fighter that's licensed with them should be subject to that. But they, they don't. the states don't want to do it because New York is afraid that if it really cracks down on PED use or to, were to make Al Heyman be licensed as a promoter, which he obviously is, or were to crack down on judges or referees who shade things a certain way, then New York will lose fights to Las Vegas and California and Atlantic City. And the powers that be in New York, and by that I don't mean the people who are sitting on the commission in New York who are a joke, 
I mean the people, the lobbyists who go to Andrew Cuomo, the governor, and say, we want this to happen and we don't want that to happen and back off on the phony you know, purses that we're filing with the commission to escape state taxes and back off on the nonsense uh, PED program you have. In New York State, which spends millions and millions of dollars a year to so-called regulate boxing, the PED program consists of telling a fighter to urinate in a cup on fight night. Do you realize how stupid you have to be to flunk that drug test? Well, that's, that's one of the other issues, isn't it? This It's the lack of uniformity. What is in and out of competition is one of them. For example, Billy Joe Saunders, he fell foul of VADA testing, but that was different to UCAD or USADA testing with the measuring of what is and is not in and out of competition, which just seems utterly absurd. It, it was really interesting to hear you say that it'll be the fighters who have to take control because interesting comments from Julian Williams after he beat Jarrett Hurd, basically saying, whoever wants to fight me, and I have a list of fights I would like, sign up to VADA, get yourself tested, prove that you are clean, or you are not going to fight for my titles. And that, that's kind of what has to happen, I guess. And I thought that was great. We'll see if Al Heyman lets him do it. We'll see if Al Heyman lets him do it. You know, uh, Tony Harrison beat Jermel Charlo. And uh, that was a fight where both Charlos, you know, they fought on the same card at Barclays Center, and both Charlos missed tests when Vada came to uh, test them before their fights. Uh, I think one fought Matt Korobov and the, the other fought uh, Tony Harrison. Both fighters missed tests, and the New York State Athletic Commission looked the other way, let the fight happen. Tony Harrison was very upset about it. He said, well, from now on, there's going to be serious testing, but uh, I don't know that Al Heyman stood behind him on that. Now, because those were for WBC titles... They're in the WBC clean boxing program, but there's very little money there to provide for the testing. And when these two guys blew off tests, the WB said, well, we're going to find them the cost of the collection agent, but that's it. We're not going to interfere with their status with the WBC in any way. Now, what happened there was the collection agents went to the Charlotte's homes they were met at the door. They were told, they're not here. Can we come in and look around? No. Do you know where they are? No. They tried their telephones because under the program you have to register so there's a contact number at all times. They didn't pick up their phones for the whole day. Afterwards, one of them tweeted, well, we were doing promotional work out of town. Okay. <clears throat> so if you're serious about getting to the bottom of this, you call them in under oath, and you say, where were you doing your promotional work? Who were you doing it with? Where did it appear? Where are the travel receipts for all this? Didn't happen. The New York State Athletic Commission backed off. Initially, they sent a letter asking questions. Then they were told from above, back off. We don't want to interfere with a fight card at Barclays Center. They backed off, but the commission was told, well, you can test them again if you want it. So the commission says, okay, we're going to test you on such and such a day. In today's world, with microdosing, 
telling a fighter you were going to test his blood or urine for PEDs on a certain day is like telling a drug dealer we have a search warrant to come into your apartment next week. Do you really think the drugs are going to be in the apartment when you go in next week? I mean, let's get real. Either you want to deal with this problem or you don't. And right now, the powers that be in boxing don't. Hey, everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I think it's a good place to, to start the conversation with, with, with someone like yourself, though, Steve, with just a, a discussion, really, of, of boxing journalism, broadcast and print, and, and how best to go about it, how maybe it's changed over the years. And, and, and Matt, of course, you're in, you know, you're, you've been on both sides of the fence now. Um, and you were doing media work when, towards the end of your, your boxing career, anyway. Uh- I was, I was, um, they used to use me a lot um, on Sky. Um, they always felt that I was quite articulate in, and I was good at breaking down the fights, reading the fights. So they, even while I was fighting, they uh, used me a lot. Um, but I mean, in terms of, I remember being out in New York after the Felix Stern fight. I signed with the Bella. I was hoping to get the shot at Sergio Martinez. I was going to pretty much all the Broadway boxing shows that Lou had at the time. And I remember seeing Steve commentating at the fights and I just thought, that's why he's so... That's why he's so much information, so much knowledge, because you know he's he's on every level of it. You know, he's not just doing the big Mike Tyson fights on a Showtime, but he's doing the Broadway boxing shows, and and I, and I guess even going around the gyms talking to fighters, and and, and so when he doesn't really have to research anything because he's so current, it just it's just another day. Well, I've first of all, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to be in this industry forty-one years. I was twenty-one when I started, and unlike a lot of today's boxing journalists. I wasn't a huge boxing fan growing up. I, I grew up during an era when Ali was the man, and I went to see all of his fights, close circuit in the movie theaters. But I, was, I didn't try to get a job in boxing. I happened to get a job with a publishing company that put out boxing and wrestling magazines, and that's how I started. So you know, what's kept it fresh for me over 41 years, you mentioned Broadway boxing and Showtime and the different levels, doing different things, being primarily a print guy for a long time and then making the adjustment to broadcast, those kind of changes is what's kept the job fresh for me and why I still enjoy it after 41 years. If I did one thing for 40 years, whether it be research or just announcing or whatever it be, it would, be, it would grow old quickly. But the changes have kept it fresh for me. And Lord knows the sport is never boring. The athletes are never boring. I mean, you know, I, I, I have trouble explaining it properly to people who don't know you know, how fantastic this is. But if you talk to other broadcasters and other writers who cover other sports, they'll all tell you. I don't know how it is with football in England. But in America, the fighters are the most down-to-earth, very often intelligent, maybe uneducated for the most part, but not un- unintelligent. They're, they're the most down-to-earth athletes. You talk to the NBA players, the NFL players, and the Major League Baseball players, it's a whole different attitude. So if you're a journalist who likes telling stories, that's usually what draws us to journalism – the fact that we're, I'm involved in boxing is ideal. I can't picture ever being part of anything else. Well, it, it was exactly the same for me because I covered a lot, of, uh, a lot of football and I was always looking to get into boxing. But 
football was the beat. It dominated, so you needed to be able to, to cover that. And when you could get to the players, they were fine. Mm. But getting to the players became right. more and more difficult. Layers, whereas, right. Yeah, whereas with boxing, it's just... When I went full-time with boxing, I realised the access was just off the scale. There's, there's yeah. no way you can't go. I remember just ringing up Jimmy Tibbs and, and Jim McDonnell and Tony Sims, and they had no idea who I was, and just inviting myself down to the gym to talk to them about boxing. And they all did it. Two of them weren't even due in the gym that day. They just came in to see me, which kind of blew my mind. I mean, in the early days when you were, like you said, you weren't a big boxing fan, so it was always probably quite new, mm-hmm. um, Gym stories, gym visits, anything in particular stick out? Well, one gym sticks out. I guess everybody has that one gym that is special to them always. And mine was the Gramercy Gym, which is a pretty famous gym because Customato helped build it. And um, I was in college working for my local weekly newspaper, and I would pass the Gramercy Gym. It was on 14th Street, not too far from here. And it was your classic walk-up-the-stairs gym, the crank, you know, the stairs that, that made noise when you walked on them. And... The big star at the gym at the time was Mustafa Hamshow, who, of course, fought Marvin Hagler a couple of times. And uh, I just, I was drawn to it. And it was hard to explain because it was so different from anything I'd ever seen before. But I remember doing a story for the local paper on the gym. And that gym eventually, like most gyms, closed down with time. And, you know, the city has changed drastically in in the years since I was in college. But um, that, that was my, sort of my entry. And that became home. And the other place that I considered home, much like maybe maybe your call is like this in England. I, I've done a couple of fights there. The Felt Forum, which is part of this building. Now it's called the, the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden. They used to run regular shows every three weeks. And that, you know, I had the same press seat. Hauser could tell you the same thing, I'm sure, because he was around back then too. And that became home. So it, it's important, I think, to feel like you belong to something. You know, and I was a kid. I was in my early 20s. I didn't know anything. And this is this is school for me, and that's how I learned about boxing. And having the gym and the and the felt forum as my bases, I think, helped a lot. So, Matt, what's it like for a fighter when somebody comes to see you in the gym for the first time? When someone really, you turn pro with quite a fanfare, but when somebody, a big name, maybe like someone like Steve, might think, oh, you know what, Matt Macklin, I've heard a bit about him. I'll go down to the gym and have a chat with him. You know, someone's come down there to see you. And made that made that effort. Yeah, well, I mean, I was always a big student of the game, so I would have known who Steve was and who all the, the top journalists and people were. And I was, you know, wanted to make him, wanted to be a big star. So, and I think this is kind of going back a little bit when you said about how boxing is a great uh, sport to cover. There's great stories, and you get a lot more access with them. I think, generally speaking, most fighters understand that promotion is a key part. You know, they may be the best fighter in the world, but if nobody knows who they are. It does, they're not going to generate a lot of money. Where, and especially, you know, in the pay-per-view industry, you know, the 24 and you see what goes into it. Life stories are so important, and um, you know, not just for the pay-per-view, selling tickets. Your profile is very important. You know, you could be the best NBA player in the world. You might not have any personality. You might do any work to sell it. It doesn't matter. You're going to get paid because you're the best NBA player, and that's just the way it is. Boxing's different. It's it's it's, it's just almost we have to help generate, have grow that part. And, um, yeah, someone, someone like Steve coming down for me would be you'd want to make a good impression. You'd want to uh, – you'd hope that he rated you firstly as a fighter, you know, because that, that – that, what he says on the television, people also uh, take that in. He's very respected. And so you, you'd want people whose opinions were, were respected and how you respected to, you know, to think highly of you. So, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd be flattered for one you'd, and you'd be very keen to impress. Has it changed much? 
in the time that you've been in it. That's exactly what I wanted to address, because I'd be very curious to hear your opinions on whether it's changed in this way in England. Because in America, when I started, and I was 21 years old, I kept my mouth shut, and I learned from the guys who had been around a long time. And a lot of those writers were trained journalists, newspaper journalists. Back then, people actually read newspapers, a little different from today. And, you know, the Michael Katzes of the world and, and maybe McIlvaney and uh, their equivalent w- w- in England. But they were hardcore journalists who knew boxing a little bit but really knew how to write. They were now uh, with the advocate, with the advent of the internet, it shifted, and it shifted a number of years ago. It's not new. Where a lot of the young kids who became members of the boxing media were boxing kids. They understood the game inside out, but they didn't have the journalistic background, and that kind of bothers me because I'm a trained journalist. That's what I studied in school, and it's very different today. And also, another way it's different. And, and after I finish, please tell me if it's the same in England. But after I fin- uh, another way it's different is years ago. Real journalists frowned at conflict of interest. You just couldn't have it. It wasn't cool to have it. Now, conflict of interest is, is rampant everywhere. It's almost impossible you know, not to. If you took a check from a promoter to do a television show, that was frowned upon. I've been doing that for years. <laughs> so, and it's not frowned upon. It's understood that this is, you know. So, so those, those are two ways it's changed. But do you, do you feel that there's a change in, in the, the way boxing is covered in England in terms of the media? I think there's been a change along the lines of the ones you, you described, because particularly with the digital explosion, it's easier now to kind of set yourself up as a, a boxing pundit. Mm-hmm. It takes effort. You've got to buy the kit. You've got to try and develop a, a platform. You've got to travel around early days for no money. But when people ask me, how, what do I need to do to get into to working on boxing? What, what do I need to do to try and do, do what you're doing? What I tell them is that you need to go and get the skills and once you've got them, then they're transferable to anything. Because yeah. when I started, I, I covered what I was told to, and it would have been the same for you, and, and you ended up on boxing, and, and, and so did I. That is one key kind of difference, I think. And the way that television and networks has, 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 generated, has um, moved on and, and worked out, we have no choice but to pick a team now, or a team has kind of conferred upon you. That's just, that's just how it is, because networks work with individual promoters and it's something that me and Matt kind of rail against a bit people every now and again say to you oh you're only saying that because he's a sky fighter and you kind of roll your eyes and just think that's really not how we do this but it's just the it's just the way it's gone with reference to writers I still think that writers can choose to be impartial completely impartial if they choose to be Mm -hmm. and I think that's a kind of luxury that they do have not all of them take it I mean, yeah, I think you're right. Social media and the internet in general has uh, has definitely changed things. And it's sort of, you know, like, like you say, you know, if you're working for a newspaper, you have to get a job, you have to have a set of credentials. You don't need credentials now. Anyone can just start up anything they want. And if they can build up a following or that, and sometimes because they're going it alone, that they want to be controversial for the sake of maybe, you know, drawing attention where I think years ago, certain particularly solid, solid newspaper scribes, you know, they, they're going to check their facts, they're going to make sure it's factual, it's not biased, it's not swayed by anything, where uh, that's definitely not, not the, the case, case anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's to be fast today, not to be right. That's, that's yeah. the priority. Yeah. Be fast, be first. If you're not right, eh, not so bad. In the old, old days, it wasn't like that. 
I think you're right. It's 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 now about getting things out there as as quickly as you can, and as you say, being first rather than being accurate necessarily. But that's the way it's gone, and, and things things do evolve. Um, I, look, I look at younger guys and, and young women who who I think in a way have been kind of forced to go down that route because the radio route that I went in uh, through, for example, it's just not nearly as open to them to the same extent. It just there isn't as much sport covered in that in that medium as as there used to be. So it's it's different. But that's the thing, isn't it? Everything everything moves on. Everything kind of evolves. If you had to choose one of the two to do, print or TV, if you'd had to choose at the start and you could only have stuck with one of them, knowing what you know now, which one do you think you would have gone for? Print. I'm a writer. That's what I do. You know, that's that's at the core of me. Now, I don't I don't apologize for the fact that I, I switched to... to uh, to broadcast because for one thing the money is a lot better <laughs> it's no secret you know um, I also have a New York accent a receding hairline and a big nose so if I, I tell people if I can be on TV <laughs> there's hope for anybody you know but I'm a writer by trade that's, that's what I do and that, that's uh, you know and, and it's an interesting thing and, and sitting next to Matthew this, this is a point in American television boxing is the only sport that's televised that has a number of analysts who are non-athletes or non-trainers. You have Max Kellerman, formerly of HBO, now ESPN. You have Al Bernstein, my colleague. You have uh, myself. You have Rich Murata. You have, uh, I'm leaving two or three out. But there are a number of them. There is not a single sport, baseball, football, basketball, that has any analysts that aren't either former players or coaches. You know, And, and, and it's an interesting thing. You, you tend to think the reason is because fighters are usually not very verbal, verbally skilled. Matthew is obviously an exception. Paulie Malinaji is, is who works for you guys as well as Showtime, uh, obviously handles himself very well behind a microphone. But that's an interesting thing that distinguishes boxing from other sports. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what's your comments on that, Andy? Well, just interested to, to hear what you think about the debate which gets ignited online pretty much on a daily basis which is every now and again a boxer will throw out the opinion that or any athlete will throw out the opinion that you can't comment on something if you haven't done it or you're not as qualified to comment on something if you haven't done it from my point of view there are certain areas where I I believe that so when Amir Khan for example had the conclusion to his fight against Terence Crawford my reaction to that was, if Amir Khan, after all he's done, is telling me that he couldn't continue, I will buy that because I think he's earned it. A fighter, you, on that score, you can say what you want because you've been in there. I don't feel I can sit there and say, ah, he quit, because I think that's a big, big call. I mean, what, what do you think about it? Not that specific incident, but just the whole idea that you know, people should keep their thoughts to themselves yeah. if they've never done what you've done. Yeah, I- I don't think you have to have been a fighter to read a fight well. I think, you, you know, if you see it, you see it. And you've been around long enough, especially someone like Steve, who's been covering it for four decades. You know, you, you've seen a lot. And you're an intelligent man. And, you know, you, you see what you see. And uh, so I, I don't think you... I don't go, you have to have been in there. What would you know? You've never boxed. I don't, I don't agree with that. Back to the thing about Amir Khan. Totally respect what you're saying. But but also, I think there's common sense where you can see if something was a big, heavy shot or not. And and I, I am going to go on to that specifically, and I'm not, not going to call Amir Khan out because I think he's shown more grit and desire as much as anyone over the years. But It's, I, just, it's just a good recent example. Yeah, but, I, but I, I, my feeling of that was 
you, you wanted a way out of the fight. You were getting beat. You had no chance of winning. It, it was a low shot, but it wasn't. You weren't in. You, you, it wasn't a case that you couldn't continue. It was definitely a low blow, but I don't think. I think he could have continued. That was my opinion on it. I mean, for you, Steve, would, would, would is quit a word that you're happy to throw out there or not? I'm, I'm very hesitant to use the word. Is part of the reason for that because I never fought? Very, very possibly so. Um, but I've heard that criticism of myself, and I'm sure Al Bernstein and many others have heard it. Who did you ever fight? I've heard that for 40 years. My answer to that is, we all have roles. I don't think I could ever probably break down a fight the way Paulie or Matthew does. You know, that's just not because of my experiences or lack of experience. However, the best food critics in the world are not chefs. The best movie critics in the world are not directors. So there's something to be said for that as well. I mean, there's room for more than one perspective. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Not everybody in professional boxing follows amateur boxing. They, they'll pick up fighters, they'll emerge in their consciousness when they turn over after the Olympics. And I, I was saying to people, I was saying to people, there's this massive iceberg heading our way for, for all of boxing. Because if Olympic boxing disappears... It will change the sport beyond recognition because people won't stay amateur as long. They'll turn pro a lot younger. They won't be as good. Uh, and it's going to make an enormous, enormous difference to everything. But at the moment, you know, it's got a, got a kind of stay of execution. It, 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 going to those tournaments, and you've been doing it longer than me by the time I started, it became apparent that what happens is um, when Ibra are running it, the ones I've been to have been for the big have been hosted by the big powerhouses, Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan mainly, the the ones I've been to. And they're like mini Olympic Games. You 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 agree to host one, you foot the bill, and they're not going to be cheap. But the quid pro quo is you're gonna do well. You're gonna do well. If there's a close decision and you're paying for it and you're in Kazakhstan, you're gonna get it. That that that's how it works. But it is it's hard to kind of prove corruption because home advantage is a thing when you've got the crowd behind you cheering you on, that's gonna help. Um but there's a reason why sort of Western countries like Britain or France or America or or you know, sort of Western European countries haven't got a major tournament for a long, long time. Because the big money is coming from places like Kazakhstan and Russia, what, and then they're getting the what, big events. What was that tournament where well, uh, you'll you'll know this better than me? I've, I've just got this thing in my head. There was something with Azerbaijan and like six million pound or dollars, or is that the European Games? Uh, the, there has been a European Games Azerbaijan. There was a World Championships in Azerbaijan in 2011, and Newsnight did this big story just before it, saying that they've been promised. Uh, X number of gold medals yeah, that and they put be. all this money in but then Aiba's defence was well Azerbaijan didn't win all these gold medals um, 
so but these are the kind of issues so what's who's right and who's wrong these are the kind of issues that are floating around the sport and, and that's the thing is is also if if you've got a tournament hosted by a strong country anyway Kazakhstan doing well in Kazakhstan no one's going to be surprised by that because because they're very good or Uzbekistan doing well in Uzbekistan but as you say it's impossible to prove but the women's world championships a recent one was in India uh, and India had their best medal haul since the previous women's world championships that was hosted in India these things are just little clues aren't they I went to the final Olympic qualifier in Venezuela before Rio for, for WSB and APB all of the Venezuelan fighters who entered got through now, they're decent, but, you know, they're hiding in plain sight. But then when it's done in full glare of everyone at the Olympics, then that's when the kind of the lid blew off it. And as you say, though, the qualifying system for, for, for Tokyo is good. Continental qualifiers, we got them at the copper box in March. And then if you don't make it through that, then there's one final crack in Paris, I think. And, and that's it. So I, I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, like it's not like... You know, they're, they're, in a tournament that has hundreds of bouts, you're going to get some bad decisions. Of course. The important thing is that they're kind of good faith, bad decisions. You know, you don't, you don't want your judges to be incompetent, but you definitely would rather incompetence rather than, corruption. than corruption. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a problem that for far too long, amateur boxing hasn't got to grips with. Um, and hopefully the sort of tide is turning a bit, but things were looking pretty bad earlier in 2019. I wasn't particularly optimistic because the good things about amateur boxing are so good, but there's just nothing worse than, you know, like you were describing, that feeling of, you know, you're getting stitched up and what can you do? That's what Cam Smith had against Azerbaijan. Like, how did you feel, say, losing that bout when you were a young amateur com- like compared to the Felix Sturm fight where you're unlucky as a, as a sort of hardened pro? Um That's I don't a really know. good question. Yeah, that is a. I don't. I, I remember. I mean, it's bringing up bad memories. No, no, it's, it's an interesting question, quite uh, thought provoking because I'm, I'm trying to. I mean, I, I think the one in the World Juniors was more heartbreaking. I, like I remember, you know, I was 18 years old. I wasn't in the habit of crying as an 18 year old, and I didn't cry in the ring, and I didn't cry initially after. But I remember when I was back in the uh, changing rooms. And then all the lads were there, you know, Craig Lyon, Mark Moran, Terry Fletcher, all my teammates, Calvin, they're all like going, oh, Macklin, that was the worst. You know, all kind of like gutted for you. And then it, then it kind of hit me and I, I remember just kind of putting my face in the towel because I was feeling a bit, and I didn't want to cry in front of everyone. Do you know what I mean? But um, but I never I never felt like crying at any point in the Sturm fight after the Sturm loss. Uh, I was a bit angry. I was, out, I was outraged and angry in the ring. Uh, most, but to be honest with you, by the time, uh, by the time I was in the, the changing rooms after, I mean, it, Sturm's guy from Ufa Sports who run who ran his personal company, I said to him, and we dealt with him all week. I said, Carson, I said I won that fight clearly. That's a, that is disgusting. He said, I'm not gonna. He said, I can't argue with you. You know, Brian Peter said to me, I said, don't worry about it. He says everyone's seen it, and, and I could see that it was universally accepted that this was a terrible decision. I knew it had been on American television. Everyone was like, so I just felt, you know, like you say, I'm, I'm over in Budapest. I've got to ring, I've got to go to the payphone, ring uh, my family and say, 
how did you get on? Nah, I, I got robbed. And they're probably going to think, oh, yeah. You know, or you, you know, you know, your family are going to believe you. But when I come home and I tell people, oh, yeah, I boxed this. I got this uh, Hungarian, but I got robbed. I won it. I was, I was bashing him, but I got robbed. They're just going to think, fuck off. Yeah, and that, Do you know that's, what I mean? that's what everyone says. You know, that's, yeah. that's the big difference, isn't it? Because these things happen kind of like out of sight, out of mind. I remember getting told an absolutely extraordinary story about it was a continental championship in Africa 2017 it was in Brazzaville in Congo and I almost went because I went to a couple of them that year and I was told this by somebody who was there who's no longer with the organization so I'm going to tell it anyway but what happened was there was a a Congolese fighter got through to a final I can't remember which weight it was but he was the only home fighter because again they've agreed to host this and they will foot the bill he was the only one who got through to the final now the authorities are there thinking okay well our lad's going to win this fight you know, that's what they're thinking. Unless he gets knocked out, he is going to win this fight for, for reasons already discussed. And then he didn't get the decision. And what happened? And there was a riot. And they they locked all the IBA officials in a room backstage. I think they got their passports because that's just how that had turned out somehow. Uh, and they said, right, you're not going anywhere. None of you are going anywhere. You need to change that result. You need to get back out there. You need to change that result. And so they did it. There was nothing else they could do. Now, that you're, you're laughing, and, and, and I, don't, I don't blame you. I'm not sure I'd have been laughing if I was there. But the, these are that, that's an extreme example. But uh, the, the, wasn't that, some action subsequently taken to like chuck out the head of that federation or something? Yeah, I think so. I think, but that that's, so at least that was so bad. Yeah, something was actually done. That that's how lawless it can it can, and, and that's the right word. That's how lawless it can be because. You know, something like that happens or a bad decision happens and then you know how quickly they move on. It's right, right, next fight in the ring. And the fighter who's been stitched up is left there utterly bewildered. Like they've just been slapped in the face and it's over and it's gone and it's like it never happened. Um, And and also, like Matt was saying, it's so bad when it happens to like a young kid, like you're 18, you're there for that tournament to win that thing. Whereas at least with the Sturm fight, you're... You got paid at the end of it. Yeah, it's going to lead you on to bigger things. There are some silver a little linings. Bit at that stage yeah. too, but you're hardened up to things. And also, it was the fact that I knew it was on. It was on Sky Sports. It was on American television. It was on. You know, there was the the world of boxing will, will yeah. have seen this fight, so they've seen it for themselves. Yeah. I don't have to go to the payphone or go to school when I get back and go. I go. I just get on. Oh no, I got robbed, and they're thinking, and me thinking, they're thinking, fuck off. Yeah, Do you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Different. And it's a big problem for kind of boxing as a whole because like amateur boxing tournaments are brilliant, but when you have key decisions that are bad for for whatever reason it might be, you just it infuses this whole thing with cynicism, and you start thinking, why bother? Why bother to watch it? So they are worth watching, but it's so important that you know the bad calls are, are ironed out or the bad apples are, are removed. Totally, totally, and, and that, you, that, that, that it's great you said that because I think pe- people listen to Macklin's take they're they're boxing through and through, and they if they follow the amateurs they'll they'll know how great it is to watch. But yeah, we don't want to be too negative because it is an extraordinary standard. Some of the fights you see are absolutely ridiculous. WSB was just one of my favourite ever things whilst that was going because. You know, I, I do the research for Sky, and and you have fighters come through, and we had one last week, Sergey, Sergey Michel, eight and five record in WSB, and whenever I whenever I write that kind of record down, I'll always put down in brackets, which in that competition 
is a very good record yeah. because in pro boxing, people look at that and think, oh, 8 and 5 is rubbish. 8 and 5 with WSB. Like, man, that means no, you are a serious fighter. Look, the good, uh, uh, yeah, I just want to add this as well. The good with the amateur thing, look, no, no system is perfect in anything, you know, and the good massively, all the positives in amateur boxing as a fighter, being involved, watching it, in any in any capacity, mass the good massively outweighs the bad, but we don't want to see the bad ruining the absolutely, good. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because the, and the people involved in amateur boxing, like the boxers and the coaches, they're all in it for the right reasons. They're trying to do something good, but like, exactly like you say, they deserve they deserve to get the fair right play. winner at the end of the day. They deserve it ought to be fair. And speaking of the WSB. I was thinking of Sergei Devryanchenko. When he was doing the WSB, he was like the king of it. Brilliant. And then he's had, you know, not very many professional fights at all. Goes in with Golovkin and like gives him hell. And there's a reason because um, obviously the WSB is harder than yeah, we're talking about. Look at Hergovic. Look at Hergovic. Yeah. 25 and 4 in WSB. So he's, he's had like 30 pro fights, yeah. really. At a good level. Before, but at a really good level before he turned professional. It's... It's, uh, God, I wish they'd bring that competition back because it was, although it was difficult to see how it lasted as long as it did because it just, it, it couldn't possibly have made any money. It must no. have been costing a fortune. And any season, really, I was thinking, this this can't keep going. And then finally, I was, sadly, I was I was, I was yeah. right. Well, this is why the IOC was worried about IEBA's finances because they were doing the WSB and you're wondering where's all the money coming from? How is it making anything? They started doing this thing called APB, which was the most, had the most bizarre What's about access to that same hedge fund Al Heyman had? <laughs> A- APB was mental though, wasn't it? I mean, it was kind of, they didn't need to do both. They didn't need to do WSB and APB, but... APB wasn't televised in any way. But you, you can just imagine these really competitive, rock-hard fights going on in Tashkent and other places where they put them on. And just no one ever knowing they'd happened or, or, or even seeing them. You've got this phenomenal standard um, literally behind closed doors. Yeah, because I, th- I think they did have like a big investor from China who's probably, who knows what he was promised, but he's probably turning around wondering like, what's going on here? Where am I getting my return? What, what have what, I done? One suspects he got his fingers burnt. Um, but anyway, we need to, we, we, we can't stick around much longer, unfortunately, which is really annoying because um, we could talk about this literally all day. Uh, but we will definitely do this again, John, and, and, and um, around the qualifiers maybe in March and and certainly in the build-up to the Olympics. And old Lucy Brown Yes, that line falls on the right babe Not that Maggie's Back in Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.